Greetings, listeners. Welcome to the Cold Fusion Now podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in the science, engineering, and business of Cold Fusion Leonard. I'm your host, Ruby Carrot. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen C. Bannister, an economist and assistant professor of economics at University of Utah in Salt Lake City. He received an undergraduate degree from the University of Illinois Champaign in economics and then spent a career in high technology and was director of Novell. He then returned for a PhD in economics at the University of Utah, where most of his research centers around energy and economic activity and is strongly connected to climate change. Welcome, Dr. Stephen Bannister. Thanks, Ruby. Nice talking with you today. (laughs) You too. Now, Dr. Bannister, I always like to start at the beginning. So can you tell me how did you first hear about cold fusion? And when did you actually know that it was a real phenomenon of research? I think I have memories of the um, sort of the original event in 89, now what almost 30 years ago in a couple of weeks. Um, And I was aware of the movies you know, where it was a a topic. But I never really paid a great deal of attention to it until I returned uh, to the university to to get my PhD degree. And um, there was a series of things that happened, coincidences, some people say they're not not coincidences, but that that led me to, um, you know, when when uh, Andrea Rossi started uh, being very public about his work, I guess that was in what 2011 or so. Uh, I started paying I started paying attention and doing, you know, just a bit of research, and uh, knew at that time that about you know that Fleischmann and Pons did their um, did their press conference and their work. Um, in the Iring Chemistry Building, which was only a, you know, a few dozen meters from where my office was, so I was aware of all that. <laughs> and then, as I went through the research for my PhD, which is about energy and economics, th- then I became much more interested in in, um, you know, what the current status of of the science was, and thinking a good deal about how it could impact our, our future. Hmm. You just mentioned the Henry Eyring Chemistry Building, and of course that's where Dr. Stanley Pons, the co-discoverer of cold fusion, was the chairman of the chemistry department there. And Martin Fleischmann was a visiting professor there from University of Southampton. Now, Coming up to this 30-year mark in just a few weeks, what activity do you see there at the University of Utah today? Are there any signs at all that they've recognized how paradigm-shifting that research was? I don't think so, (laughs) Uh, with with some some, uh, caveats around that. Um, The people in my department, in the Department of Economics, are aware of this because I have been, you know, sort of pounding the table for a decade now about it, almost, well, not quite a decade, but, you know, for, for a number of years. 
and increasingly so as I advance my the the uh, economics part of my research. Now there are people. So so if you go today, if you go to the chemistry department and bring up this topic, which I have done, um, they come back and say, "Oh no no, it's um, pathological science," you know, and we don't really want to talk about it very much. And I'm not sure that anyone in the physics department has much of an interest in it today. I don't know that, but I, I, I've talked to some of the, the grad students in physics, and there's no awareness, at least at that level. However, <laughs> there is some interest in um, the Department of Earth Sciences, which includes, yeah, the, so the, the chair, I think recently, the, the, he's just left the chair of the department, um, or the dean, I'm sorry, dean of the, the College of Earth Sciences. Um, there's a fellow that um, was a postdoc at Los Alamos and knew Ed Storms, knows Ed Storms, and wow. um, actually... Yeah, actually did a report at Los Alamos on Ed's LENR experiments. Mm. <laughs> so I, I've, I've, through happenstance, found out about this man, and he and I have been in communication and are thinking about how to begin to, um, you know, advance the the rehabilitation of the reputations of Fleischmann and Pons and do some other things around this, although it's not very formal yet and it's not very advanced. But there are, I'm sure there are other people around campus like that, but mm -hmm. I, I just don't, I haven't found them all yet. Could you talk about what you know of the archives there? Sure. Uh, I, I became aware that there are the archives of the... Um, I think it was called the National Center for Cold Fusion that was funded by the state legislature here in Utah for uh, two or three years, you know, after the Fleischmann and Pons discovery, while there was still some excitement about uh, about the, the uh, science. And, um, you know, I know there's, at least by the online records, there's a, uh, a dozen or so boxes of archive materials. And um, interestingly, there is perhaps some additional interest on the part of the librarians there, the special collections librarians who, who are responsible for those archives in doing something with the archives. I, I happened on this because I was meeting with them over uh, a different topic that turns out to be correlated, related to LANR, but it's, uh, it has to do with um, the work of a physicist who wants to archive his, his uh, records at the University of Utah. And as it turns out, the work of that physicist has quite a bit to do with, you know, with uh, coming up with a, I think, a very interesting theoretical explanation for, for LANR and other related phenomena. So that's how I found out about uh, the archives in more depth. But uh, I don't know much more uh, right now, but I hope to meet with these people again in the near future. Well, as a research economist, can you tell us how breakthrough technologies have historically affected the economies of society? Well, let me just briefly you know, talk about that by referring to my dissertation 
my PhD dissertation, which was about uh, industrial revolutions. So it was sort of a historical dissertation uh, or a history of economics dissertation. And um, of course, the the uh, most important one is is the Industrial Revolution in England, but that's not the only one. And in doing that, I happened on a data set for energy consumption going back to 1300 in England. And I was able to get other data like population data and gross domestic product or output data for England going back to that same year. So I had a very long time series. And I just ran some simple correlations and drew some simple graphs. And as it turns out, in England from 1300 through the end of the period, I mean, I, I ended the, that particular um, data set in the late ni um, 19th century, about 1875. The correlation, <laughs> the statistical correlation between energy inputs and uh, economic output was about 0.998, which is as close <laughs> to unity as you can get. I mean, it, it was ridiculously high. So I was, you know, that that certainly has stayed with me. And whenever I look at other economies, I see same the same kind of pattern, very high correlation. So energy is is just essential. It is the most essential input to economic activity. And there's just no there's no way to substitute away in economic terms to other inputs. You must have energy. Now the source, you can you know you can change sources, but you still have to have that energy to drive the economic activity. So that uh, you know led me to other, and, and uh, in fact, I, in the paper, in my dissertation and subsequent work, I characterize the industrial revolutions that England had, that um, the Song Chinese had in the 11th and 12th century, and others. Um, as energy revolutions, that was the primary characteristic that they learned how to consume energy as an input to economic economic activity at a very on a very large scale compared to what they were doing before. As you think about how science and technology shape society, what can you say our society has lost economically? due to the fact that we didn't get cold fusion yet. It's three decades mm -hmm. uh, ago it was first announced, and it's been underfunded, and the research has been stymied because of that. What have we lost? Sure. Well, I think you can. I can think of that, or I, we can think of it in, in a couple of ways. First... Um, there are the what we call negative externalities from the you know the carbon that's used in our primary energy sources right now, and the losses are economic losses. So you have um, you know I mean pollution, carbon dioxide and other kinds of pollution are um, costs to society as a whole. They cause people to be less healthy. They cause inversions occasionally here in the Salt Lake Valley. And on and on, there are many, you know, detrimental things because of that, that carbon pollution and it's causing climate change. Most of us believe it's causing climate change, so that that's going to be a huge cost. But I think there's something that's also 
probably going forward, it, it, when we get this technology developed and widely distributed, that um, that will be uh, as important, at least as important as cleaning up the sources of energy, decarbonizing the energy sources. And that is that the, you know, when I refer to the Industrial Revolu Revolution, one of the ways that we think about that is that in economic terms, it was a huge positive supply shock to the English economy and eventually to the world's economy, meaning it radically, dramatically increased the amount of output that any economy could, um, could produce and therefore increased living standards. And that was the first time in history in England that that had happened in any, you know, going back as far as we can look, which is uh, 10,000 years or so. Well, if we get another new source of energy with a particular characteristic, which I, I, I'm going to mention here in a second, um, that has uh, a very large capacity that we can scale up, we have the potential for having another huge positive supply shock and increasing living standards. Now, the thing we need in order to accomplish that is to get a, a clean energy source that has an extremely low cost, much lower than anything we have right now. You know, by an order of magnitude or 10 times or 100 times cheaper would be uh, ideal. And if we do that, then I think um, you know, we'll have very highly increased living standards around the world. And I think that's a very good thing. As, a, as an economist and as a development economist, I'm very interested in, um, in thinking about that and trying to facilitate it. Well, I want to ask you about what you see in the changes to our economy when we do get Leonard in just a minute. Mark your calendars for the Lanner CF Colloquium at MIT. The Lattice Assisted Nuclear Reaction Cold Fusion Colloquium is on Saturday and Sunday, March 23rd and 24th, 2019. Coming up, folks, on the campus of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. For more information and links to register, go to the International Society of Condensed Matter Nuclear Science website at www.iscmns.org. The 22nd International Conference on Condensed Matter Nuclear Science, ICCF 22, happens this September 8th through 15th in Assisi, Italy. For more information as it becomes available, go to the International Society of Condensed Matter Nuclear Science website at iscmns.org. And we're back with Dr. Stephen Bannister, an economist at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Dr. Bannister, suppose we have breakthrough today and a scalable, energy-dense, ultra-clean power generator is now available. How will our current economy handle that? And what will eventually replace it? Okay. Um, if I can add one characteristic to your, the revolution that you just laid out, 
that I mentioned briefly before, and that is the cost aspect of it. Of course. If this is also a significantly lower cost uh, energy source, which everything I understand suggests it can be, no matter what the current you know, pricing might be in the, in the people that are trying to commercialize it right now. But the potential for very low cost energy, very low cost, is uh, I think huge with this technology. If that happens, and to the degree uh, that there is the price difference, that is uh, the higher the price difference, the quicker the effects that, I'm, that I think are gonna happen should happen. And that is that it will simply displace um, carbon-based sources without, um, just on a purely economic basis, without, you know, you don't have to go around and regulate or put carbon taxes on or anything like that if we get a sufficiently cheap source of energy. It'll drive out the, you know, the bad sources, and it could do that very quickly. It could do it in a matter of less than a generation, maybe much less than a generation if if the price differentials are, are sufficiently large. And of course, that would cause all kinds of institutional and structural changes in the economy in the United States and in the world. I mean, you would have uh, massive changes in the, in the kind of companies that were rich and powerful. The oil companies would suffer a great deal, and coal companies, of course, and um, and they would be replaced by other companies that were utilizing this new cheap clean source. Hmm. On on the consumer side, I, I think it bears repeating: if it's cheap enough, then economic activity will um, be elevated to the point where we get productivity gains and living standards gains that we may never have seen in the history of the world could be greater than the Industrial Revolution. What do you think that would do to our natural environment? You know, right now, economic gains have such a high cost, as you mentioned. This is where we could have higher standards of living without harming our environment the way the previous that's energy correct. source did. Now, that's correct. We have to be a little careful in thinking through this. A lot of uh, environmentalists and environmental economists and so forth um, are concerned when people like me talk about another industrial revolution and higher levels of output and higher living standards because it's not just the carbon uh, problem that we have Every time you increase economic activity, the level of economic activity, the total amount of output, then you put other uh, pressure on other of the natural resources. You consume more water, you consume other kinds of raw materials and so forth. And there are negative aspects of doing that. However, and um, I, I, I'm not sure that we want to go too far into this. It's a, probably a conversation in and of itself. As living standards increase, as, as they have been already, you know, over the last 300 years or so, um, the um, number of babies that are born into the world are go- per, per person, per woman, are going down. And in my 
research and modeling, I project that that's going to continue such that the total population of the earth, because of increased living standards, and there's a whole set of correlates there that, you know, it'd be fairly complex to get into right now, but uh, the, the total population will go down sometime this century, start going down. And when that happens, all of the pressure on the earth's resources will, will be uh, decreased. So we can have increased living standards with less pressure overall on our environment uh, as long as we have this nice, clean energy source that we're we're talking about, mm-hmm. so it's a pretty good story in the long run if we can if we can get there quickly enough. Hmm. I see your point. The increased standard of living makes women more educated, and they have fewer children, and that uses actually less resources. That's exactly right. So it you know dem- demographers call that a demographic transition. It started in about 1880 in England, and it's now spread around the world. And we're having fairly, um, I think, startling decreases in in the the way we measure that, which is called the total fertility rate, um, including here in Utah, which is, you know, to some people's surprise, uh, we're we're down to the replacement rate of um, of population here in the state of Utah. We used to have quite a few babies laying around, but not so much anymore. <laughs> well, Dr. Stephen Bannister, where will you be this March 23rd, 2019? Will you be celebrating in the University of Utah Physics Department? <laughs> uh, I don't think quite yet. I don't think the <laughs> campus has, um, you know, healed itself from the even 30 years ago. There's still some scars left from, you know, all the negative um activity that surrounded the 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 uh, press conference however i do plan to um celebrate i may pull out one of the old movies and watch it <laughs> and um you know just just start to plan ahead you know wouldn't it be great if we could get stan ponds to come back to campus one of these days and and oh, be celebrated <laughs> I'm not sure that could happen. <laughs> right. No, I know. But, I, you know, it's if someone doesn't think about it, it won't happen. Mm. And, um, and I would love to see their, you know, those two scientists uh, be acknowledged for what they've, they've started. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. I think it's headed in a great direction. And uh, at some point, I think the university, I don't know how soon, but this university will recognize that they were indeed pioneers. Absolutely. Um, I visited the University of Utah in 2012, and I didn't see any pictures of Dr. (laughs) Stanley Pons or Dr. Martin Fleischman, uh, let alone a statue. Um, But one day, I know they're going to be building statues to these fellows. (laughs) You know, Ruby, I think you're right. I really do. Well, Dr. Stephen C. Bannister, thank you for your work, and uh, thank you for bringing this insight into the economic ramifications of Leonard Technology uh, to us today. It was a great deal of fun and a great pleasure. Thank you, Ruby. We've been speaking with economist Dr. Stephen C. Bannister from the University of Utah at Salt Lake City, whose research focuses on energy and economic activity. 
And that's it for today. Remember, you can find more episodes of the Cold Fusion Now podcast on our website at coldfusionnow.org. And subscribe on iTunes. Until next time, I'm Ruby Carrot.